Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. We're going to have a great show today. Okay. I can feel it. We can feel it. We got it. We got got (laughs) this in the bag. (laughs) Let's start out the show by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Siobhan, Joe, Amy, Shelby, Libby, Andrea, Emily, Maria, Erica, Jay, Hillary, Janine, Lally, Lauren, Bunny Double, Angel, Jennifer, Jamie, Christy, Michael, Whitney, Lauren, Akitra, uh, Kathy, JS, Marita, Jessica, and Katie. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. What do we got today, Desi? Okay, well, this is another week where I had a completely different plan. And because I couldn't get a book that I wanted, then I had to like bail on the whole plan. So I started looking for other celebrity memoirs or like not even like, but like campy ones. And I came across one of these uh, celebrity memoirs that was called My Face for the World to See. And it was by an actress named Liz Renee, who you might know from the John Waters movie, Desperate Living. Oh, She's the blonde, sexy blonde lead, one of the lead characters in that movie. And Obviously, the thing that appealed to me was John Waters. The reason he put her in that movie is because he read this um, memoir and was obsessed with her. Really? Yes. So obviously, that piqued my interest. You know that Rachel and I are both huge fans of John Waters and pretty much everyone connected with him. Absolutely. So I was pretty interested. Uh, My main source for this I'm sorry, this episode is that memoir, My Face for the World to See, which, by the way, is a line from Female Trouble. He like took that memoir title. And there's several other instances where I'm like, that is something he got from her memoir. My other source that I used is her other memoir called My First 2000 Men. (laughs) That was actually the first one she did. And then she did the second one uh, later. So this is a real character we're about to be dealing with. She has like a very interesting life. Liz Renee was born Pearl Dobbins on April 14, 1926 in Chandler, Arizona to William and Ada Dobbins. And they were very evangelical like parents, so the household was very strict. She grew up dirt poor and she spoke about in her memoir spoke about that her favorite pastime when she was a child was dumpster diving, looking for broken toys, but mostly she loved finding magazines, especially ones that showed the lives of movie stars in their fancy homes. Now, when she would show her mother, Liz would tell her that one day she would be a movie star too, and she would buy her parents a home like this, like that whole thing. And the mom said to her, Liz, you have to be beautiful to be a movie star, and you're the ugliest kid I've ever seen. (laughs) I think the mom was very realistic, maybe too realistic. It sounds like uh, Don Davenport. Totally. That sounds like something she said to Taffy. Oh, absolutely. Uh, You're going to see a lot in this like her story where you're just like, this is such a John Waters inspiration, like um, for sure. Now that only made Liz more determined to become beautiful. And her mom also became more determined to discourage her from what she was sure would end up in heartbreak. Like she didn't want her daughter pursuing this, especially because they were really Christian. And she was really ugly. (laughs) Most importantly, she was a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Luckily, she had a granny who was like a real rebel. She drank beer. She read True Confession magazines. And she told young Liz that she could be anything she wanted. And she even encouraged her granddaughter that rules were to be loosely followed. (laughs) I already love this grandma. Now, because Liz's family was so religious, she wasn't allowed to go see movies. Uh, I mean, they were dirt poor as well. So there was like a few reasons. But that didn't stop her of dreaming of pursuing an acting career. 
In addition to being made made fun of for being poor, Liz was also made fun of for being a holy roller. In fact, when she would have to pray in church or at home, she would often pray that kids at school did not find out she was a holy roller. (laughs) Everything was considered the devil's playground at Liz's church. Movies, swimming pools, skating rinks, makeup, and cigarettes and booze were all satanic. But Liz's dad was a little less of a holy roller, and he developed quite a drinking problem. I love when they make things satanic. Oh, yeah. It's always, like, so much hotter. Like, I don't know how they don't know that that backfires, like, so hard. Yeah, Satan's intriguing. Um, Anyway, so Liz's, like, dad became this huge alcoholic, and so much, like, when she started becoming, like, people made fun of her in school for being religious, she started defending herself by saying, if that's true, why is my dad the biggest drunk in town? (laughs) 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 Which is, like, the most... Desi child <laughs> child defense ever like if my mom's a slut then like, just like me trying to explain something but, but it, making it way worse because I don't know what's normal like you had a pretty you had some like religious moments in your childhood didn't you oh totally who like, was the Mormon what was the Mormon? my mom's side of the family was Mormon so my oh. mom was not Mormon but my grandmother was nor- Mormon and I was very close to her right so I would always be with her uh, so of course I wanted to like go to church with her. She would put my hair in like Nellie Olson banana curls. Like so I got to be like this child star with her. Mm-hmm. I looked like a ragamuffin with my mom, but at my my nana's I would wear like princessy dresses Aww. with like rollers. She'd put like hot rollers in my hair. <laughs> so it was like very. So then I loved going to church because I would get really dressed up like yeah. Shirley Temple. And then I also loved performing on the microphone from a very young age. <laughs> so I would go up and bear my testimony, which, and I was the only child who would do it. Oh, so it was like all adults, but I like to get all the attention. <laughs> so I really relate to Liz, like wanting to be bad and kind of being bad, but then also trying to be this like perfect child right. or something. Uh, so eventually her dad and Liz become more like involved in the church, but unfortunately, right as this happened, Liz began to develop a curvy figure and as her mom put it, a vulgar bosom. (laughs) The wolf whistles were like pouring in for fucking Liz. She's like 12, 13 at this age and like men are coming onto her. She's finally hot. So her mom, of course, is like equally disgusted (laughs) that she's finally hot. That does (laughs) seem to be the age that men start coming on to girls is 12 years old. Older men. I'm talking about older men. Right. Like the first, I remember the first time getting wolf whistled at from, uh, I was walking home from like the pool with my friend and we were were in our bikini tops and our shorts and there were all these guys whistling us. We were 12 years old. It's like this age where all of a sudden you're seen as sexual. Yeah. Even though you wore a bikini for the previous 11 years. Do you know what I mean? Like Totally. And you look, when you see a picture, I haven't seen a picture of myself at that age because I have zero childhood pictures, but I've seen other people when they post like a picture of them when they're 12, it's always like, you look like a fucking child. <laughs> like, yeah. It's so shocking. But you get whistled at. Yeah. It's, it's disgusting. It's so gross. Now, um, her mom would always, you know get irritated by Liz's bouncing body and tell her to walk more carefully so things didn't suggestively jiggle. (laughs) She describes herself as being a child in a woman's body, and that's not a great combo, as we just discussed, when there's lots of fucking pervs around. Now, she's actually in a church teen group, and then the church group leader finds out that she's only 13 and she was supposed to be 15 to be in the group. So she gets kicked out because she's way too long, but young, but she looks like obviously 16 or 17. Now, once she gets kicked out of this meeting, she's furious and she's like, fine, then I'm going to go check out one of Satan's palaces. <laughs> so she leaves that church meeting and she goes to a roller rink. Now, she enters the roller rink and she just sees the music, people skating, and she's like, this is wonderful. Like, why would anyone have a problem with this? Like, so that's where they told her that Satan existed. That was one of the places like roller rinks, movie theaters, like all of that, all the fun places. So of course she's like, Oh, the church is full of shit. Like this stuff is fun as hell. So she immediately decides she's going to go check out other satanic things and going, and she goes to a movie theater. Now she comes into this movie theater and she sort of comes at the last 10 minutes, but she's like, so blown away by what she sees. It's like a romance. It's in Technicolor. 
When she's walking out of the movie theater, a man who has clearly been drinking and was sitting near her in the movie asks her if if she wants to join him for a drink. Now <laughs> she's like in a she's like in one of those moods where she's like, I'm saying yes to everything tonight. So she goes with him to a bar to get a drink. She, no one bats an eye at this 13-year-old girl drinking alcohol in a bar. Uh, he's giving her cigarettes. He's like putting on suggestive music on the jukebox. They're dancing around. She drinks three Singapore slings and is pretty sloshed at this point. It's the first alcohol she's ever had. This sounds fun. Yeah. The guy, of course, begins to try to grope her and wants to take her home. She escapes out a bedroom, uh, I'm sorry, a window in the bathroom and like runs home. Oh my so God. She escapes this perv guy. Now, that night though, in bed, she begins to fantasize that the actor in the movie was the one groping her at the bar. So she's like in her bed, like practically masturbating, but not like just fantasy wise. She's like thinking of it and being like flushed with like desire. Uh, so the world of sensual pleasures has been open to Liz and she would never close it. She's a horny girl, Rachel. Uh, now Liz is still only 13 at this time. As I mentioned, her mom finally starts to relent and lets her go to school dances. She comes back from her first dance and she tells her mom all the boys dancing with her were menstruating. The mom's like, what are you fucking talking about? And she's like, I could feel their hard cotexes pressing against me when we did. (laughs) And her mom was literally like, you fucking idiot. Like, that's not a cotex. Like. That's how innocent she was. Like, well, maybe if her parents had told her these things. Exactly. I mean, Jesus, this is the, 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 there's so many like people who are like from these religious, super religious, re- sexually repressed homes. Yeah, it's like the worst thing. They can't even tell their, their kid about tampons. I always tell people like, I never really was forbidden from drinking. I mean, like in a moderate way, obviously. But like when I was 18 or out on my own, I never cared about getting drunk. Like the people who were out on their own for the first time would just be getting like shit face. Like, you know, you know what I mean? It's like because they were forbidden like their whole life until they got on their own to drink. That so it's is like, not my experience yeah. at all. <laughs> I just was always allowed to drink, so I didn't really care. But I mean, obviously you had a different experience. But well, I'm it's, a, it's well, interesting. I'm an alcoholic. Right, but other people who just get wasted the first time, it's like, whoa, they have no control like right. over themselves. Right. Um, so her mother forbid her from going to these dances now, but Liz would obviously sneak out, and she said that she would begin to rub even harder against the boys' cotexes. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> now, her and a fellow busty teen at some point decided they were going to run away to become showgirls. They're 13 years old. They were busted by the cops at a diner where they hitchhiked. And at the diner, they had conned two sailors into buying them breakfast. (laughs) So at this point, they're arrested and brought back to their hometown. Now, after this, at the age of 15, she becomes a cocktail waitress. That's obviously a job she was also way too young to have. Um, It was at this job that she saw something that changed her life. She said when she left work one day, she saw a couple in a car parked in front of the um, cocktail lounge, and it was one of her fellow church ladies fucking a serviceman in the <gasps> in the backseat of the car. So she saw that, and she said, I no longer felt guilt because everyone was as horny as I was. Wow. <laughs> so she was just like, yeah, like, see, even the church people are fucking. The church people are probably really horny. Absolutely. Because they, Especially the women. They're repressed. Yeah. Now, Liz was extra horny for servicemen. This is around, like, when things were starting to hop, hop or, like, hopping around, like, I don't know, like, close to the 40s. So, like, uh, oh, like, army people? Army people. I guess she might have been near a base. I'm not really sure. But there was, like, a lot of servicemen at her disposal. Was she, like, I'm really into sailors? She liked marines and sailors, like, anything. I just think that that was, like, the the hot bad boy type thing. Ooh, they're, like, in the troops. Like, I just don't <laughs> think that's the same anymore. <laughs> now, she kind of, like, liked the uniform. It's, like, that kind of thing. Uh, she also told a story where like I guess the Air Force guys have some kind of wing pin and he told her that's um that's known as the leg spreader. The leg spreader. <laughs> yeah. So like that's how much girls wanted to fuck service members at that really? time. Now she was very curious, but she was still very innocent. She once asked 
friends what a cocksucker is like in the middle of a restaurant and everyone was like laughing because she said it very innocently like what's a cocksucker (laughs) not realizing it was like filthy Uh, but through it all she did remain a virgin once telling a service man when he like pulled his dick out put that thing away she like yelled at him and his she said I saw his erection collapse now (laughs) one night things got so hot and heavy with a soldier he asked her to marry him she said promise not to put it in until we're married so they pretty much immediately go and get married she's 15 years old at this time and oh my god so they get married he immediately takes her to a hotel and fucks her she's like he came in one minute and she's like i was so upset because i had been waiting for sex so long and it was like is that all there is uh, and he didn't want to fuck more. She's like, okay, should we, tr- you know, do it again? <laughs> she wanted more fucking. And he's like, no, babe, you know, I got to get up early. <laughs> that kind of thing. I um, came already. Imagine marrying somebody because you want to fuck them. And then the sex isn't even that good. Uh, well, even I mean, it Liz, was her first time. Even, I get it. But you, you got, that's why you got to try the, try it out. <laughs> that's why you got to test drive the car. Now, within days, she realized that, She loved the freedom more than she loved her husband, and she left him a note at the hotel dumping him and hitchhiked to San Diego. Now, while she was in San Diego, she survived off of getting servicemen there to pay for things. So she just would hang out around the bus station and get them to buy her food and like stuff like that. Obviously, her parents are trying to track her down. She eventually gets busted by cops in San Diego and taken to juvie before she's escorted back to Arizona and put in juvie there. Uh, While she's in juvie, she discovers that she is pregnant. So from that one bad sex time, she got pregnant. The worst case scenario. Yes. Imagine getting pregnant from your first time. (laughs) And then it's like not even good sex. So you can't be like, well, at least it was worth it. That sucks. Dude. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. She gives birth to her daughter, who she names Brenda, and she begins working at a coffee shop where she meets her uh, second husband, Paul, a Marine. He would pick her up every night from the coffee shop and drive her home, and eventually they started fucking on the way home. Does he? Yes. Have you ever fucked a troop before? Not that I know of. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't, like, intentionally... I, I don't think so. Yeah, I was just wondering... I really don't think I have, but you never know, right? I don't think I have either. Either. I mean, I would guess. Oh, I wait. Would, yes, I have. But it, oh. was, it was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like a Lifetime movie. <laughs> Passionate discharge. 
Okay, hold okay. on one sec. And we're back. So Paul is eventually restationed to North Carolina. He is madly in love with Liz and asks him to join him there so that they could get married. She does that. And of course, the minute she gets there, he's shipped off overseas. Uh, So she moves back to Mesa, Arizona, and she finds out she's pregnant again. She begins helping the war effort by fucking a lot of servicemen. She fucks so many men during this period, and they're pretty much all servicemen. Now, they love it even more because she's pregnant. <laughs> so, oh. like, the bigger, the more pregnant she gets, like, the more they all, like, fetishize and want to fuck her. Some people are into that. Yeah. So she sends, like, a letter to her husband, who's, like, off at the war, uh, dumping him. So she dumps another guy. She had at this point met a very rich man named Harold Murphy who set her up in a little love nest. She's 18 at this time and he's 40. So they are together for four years before she found out that he was married. It was like one of those situations where she's always like, when are you going to marry me? And like, why don't you, we live together. Like all of those kind of things where it's like obvious once you find out, or it should have maybe been obvious before she found out. But you com- she probably just was in denial. This is just like Jenny and Sumit on 90 Day Fiance the other oh. way. Jenny finds out that Sumit, after she moved to India, she finds out that Sumit has been married this whole time. Ooh. And it is dramatic. It, it's a pretty dramatic thing to, to find do out to your lover is married the yeah. whole time. Yeah. Now, the reason. Please write into the show. <laughs> Please. Please write into the show if you or someone you know has been in a relationship and then they found out that their partner was married. Ugh. So the way she finds out is that he gets taken to the hospital for some minor thing, like, I don't know, gout or something. And when she shows up at the hospital, there's another woman there and she's kind of like, can you leave so I can talk to him in privacy or something? And the woman's like, I'm his wife. So that's like how she finds out in this scene where she's talking about this in her memoir, she refers to the woman as hatchet face. Oh, which I was like, Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Cause that's obviously a character from Crybaby. I love this memoir. It's just filled with Easter eggs. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, when I, the minute I read that, I was like, Oh, very interesting. Cause that is such a funny like name for someone. I mean, in his, and Crybaby, it's almost like a badge of honor. Like she takes it on kind of, I, I think. I love yeah, It's face. such a great character. So yeah, she, um, he gets out of the hospital. He's like, we'll talk about this later, baby. Uh, oh no, he doesn't get out of the hospital. In the hospital, she's basically saying, tell me now, are you with me or with her? And he um, delayed. He's like, I'll, when, when I get out of the hospital, we'll, uh, I'll, we'll talk more about it. She's like, nope, that's it. You just made your decision. I'm fucking leaving you. She leaves the hospital, goes to the house that he bought for her, only takes what she came into the relationship with, nothing that he bought her. She also gets the title of the house and, and goes to his lawyer and signs the house back over to him. She's like not taking anything from wow. him. Yeah. He gets really pissed about this. He tries to stop her. He says, you never had a dime before me and you'll never have a dime after me. Uh, that's like his final parting shot to her as she's like in the taxi cab running off with all of, like leaving with her stuff. And she yells out the window at him, don't go crystal balling my future. <laughs> she like speeds off in a taxi. That's true. You never want to do that because the opposite thing is going to happen. Yeah. That's what I'm always thinking. Like, the minute you give someone that kind of ultimatum. Somebody did that to me once and the opposite happened. I'm just saying. Yeah. You don't want to do that. Now, she still, you know, is dreaming of being a star. She's only 18 or maybe early 20s now because this this relationship started when they were 18. So yeah, she's like 22. Um, A production crew for The Sound and the Fury comes to Phoenix and films. They want townspeople. Um, She applies to be one of the extras. She's one of 500 extras. And during that period she's filming, which I think is two days, she keeps maneuvering herself into all of these positions where she's going to get noticed 
Um, And luckily for her, there is a reporter from Life magazine who's writing a profile of one of the stars of the movies. He decides to do like a little story about like what it's like to be an extra on a movie like this. And he picks Liz to be his little like story. So she gets pictures. Um, She gets like a little splash in this big Life magazine article. Now, she's also around this time named Miss Stardust of Arizona. And in that contest, she wins $500 cash, a trip to New York, and a modeling contract. So in 1949, she moves to New York City and quickly begins earning money as a top model with Eileen Ford's agency. She also has a new hubby at this time who she just picks up and takes to New York with her. Liz, by the way, is married seven times throughout her life. So she gets a lot of husbands, but most of them are like the first few years. (laughs) Like she just like, by the time she's like 22, she's been married three times, which is insane. So this marriage is not great. The more successful she becomes, the more jealous he gets of her success. He's like taking her money and like, She's making all the money and he's basically just taking it. He's not like a great stepdad. Like he's just a useless putz. Now, she comes home one night and finds that her young sonny, her young son Johnny has been beaten by this <gasps> this uh husband. She immediately takes both kids. He had stolen all her money. She has zero money. She moves into a hotel with only $20 to her name. Now, this is really stressful for her obviously because She knows she has to get money fast before she has to pay this hotel bill. She decides without absolutely zero experience that she's going to become a nightclub entertainer. So she starts looking for jobs and she gets a job or like a tryout at one of New York's hottest nightclubs, the French Quarter. So this is basically like an exotic dancing, kind of like a burlesque type show at a bar. Um, That's sort of the, the venue she's going to. She has no costumes, no music. She goes to the store and buys um, sheet music for a song she's never even heard. <laughs> she goes, she buy, she like makes a sexy costume out of like ribbons and buttons and like whatever she has and she like hand sews and it is super fucking slutty because it's so tiny and like when she goes to her first day like at this like tryout, everyone is just like, wow, <laughs> that's some outfit. Cause it's like, even amongst like this seedy burlesque world, this was like a shockingly fucking small outfit. Uh, she immediately makes up the name that she's Mystia, the mystery lady. Uh, and she also has a piece of fabric to use as kind of like a veil. Now, She's literally pushed out on the stage. She has never heard the song before, as I mentioned. So she kind of plays up this idea that it's everything's a mystery because it's literally a mystery to her because she has no idea what she's fucking doing, but it kind of works in this act. At the end of the act, she actually falls on the floor accidentally, but she like looks up and rips her veil off. <laughs> so it looks like this dramatic like ending. The audience like loses it. They fucking love her. She's wearing the smallest outfit they've ever seen on stage. And she gets hired for a hundred dollars a week, like doing her act now at this club. So now she's going to have some big grand opening. They really want to push her as this big, you know, in-house star. She goes all in on costumes. She dyes her hair platinum blonde, which makes her look even more like Marilyn Monroe. She has like a very Marilyn look. She even had, um, eventually will win a Marilyn Monroe lookalike contest, which um, gets her a guest spot on the Steve Allen show. So she really starts playing that look up. Now, if you don't already love Liz... She gets busted at the hotel for keeping a cat in her room. And instead of getting rid of the cat, she finds a really junky apartment to move into with her kids so she can keep it. Yeah. So we love Liz. She keeps that fucking cat. She's a cat She doesn't let it go just because she's having some troubles. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, this place she moves is like not a great, um, it's like a walk-up apartment that's really shittily kept up. Her son, Johnny is at some point leaning against a wall in the walk-up apartment and the wall literally crumbles and he falls through and lands on the sidewalk below. That's like my building. It is. It was such a frightening story. Like this is a really long story in the book. I'm just going to kind of hit on it. But he gets seriously injured, obviously, because he fucking fell out of a building. Uh, she like looks through the hole and sees her son on the sidewalk below. Luckily, he survives this incident. But he's hospitalized. He has serious brain trauma. He has like blood in his spinal fluid. Oh my God. It's a very serious incident. 
Now, this happens the same night as her huge grand opening um, performance was going to happen at the French Quarter. Obviously, she goes to the hospital with her son uh, and doesn't... And, and they're, so they're like, where the fuck is Liz? Like, she bailed on us. So during this, she becomes very close to her boss's friend, who is a mob guy named Tony Coppola, known as Cappy. Now, he's the right-hand man to a mob boss named Al- Albert Anastasia. These clubs um, in New York at the time were real mob hotspots, like these burlesque clubs. They were just going there and fucking owning the joints. Now, although her boss was kind of pissed at first, once he obviously once he found out what had happened, he was very supportive of Liz, and so was Cappy. They both pretty much stayed by her side during this. Um, Cappy and Liz get really close, and they eventually become lovers. Now, Cappy spoils Liz, but. He's also in the mob, so now Liz is a gangster's mole and her life becomes pretty scary because she's just around all these conversations and hearing these things. And she's definitely like a little bit in denial about the things she kind of overhears and sort of lets it slide. She starts making drops for him and picking up or like holding large sums of cash for him, but like never really asking any questions. Uh, She has a scary incident with a prowler one night and then the next day Tony gives her a gun. It's just like that kind of shit. Now... A few months later, Tony invites Liz to a dinner. When she shows up, she sees a very long white table surrounded by every mob member bigwig she has ever met. Tony gets up and makes an announcement as she walks in the door. He said, here is this lucky woman who I have decided to marry. Now, they had never discussed this. So Uh Liz immediately says to him, well, isn't that nice? (laughs) (laughs) So... This engagement party starts like, like once the announcement paid, everyone's like, ah, you know, clinking glasses. That is the worst public engagement idea ever. It's so bad because she was like fucking horrified. You literally can't say no in that situation. Yeah. So she takes him aside at this party and she's like, if that wasn't a, a, a proposal, then I'm saying no. And he said to her, uh, you marry me or I'll fucking kill you. Uh-oh. Now, obviously Liz is terrified because <laughs> she's she knows deep down she's dating a mob guy who kills people. Uh, Tony said he's not going to be humiliated. Um, he like walks her to the taxi and he's like, you'll c- get back to me with that and or I'll kill you. Look, Tony really set himself up to yeah. be humiliated here. Yeah, so... For the next few days, she literally lives in terror. Like, she thinks people are following her. She th- Every noise she hears, she thinks it's someone coming to kill her. Eventually, she can't take it anymore. She goes to his hotel room and says, if you're going to kill me, just fucking kill me right now. And she stands in front of him. He comes up to her with a knife and puts it to her throat. She doesn't budge, and he, like, gets away. Then he gets a gun and points it at her and she doesn't budge again. She's like, kill me, fucking kill me. Then he like tosses the gun and she grabs the gun and points it at him and fires it, but (gasps) it was empty. (laughs) So he's like, bitch, you're, you were going to really kill me. He's like, I would have never killed you. Like, of course he turns into like a huge puss in that moment, but obviously he respects the game. Like he has to respect Liz's game in this moment. He apologizes to her for everything that he did, and they remain good friends. Now, they remain such good friends, in fact, that when Liz finally decides to take her chance and move to Hollywood in 1959, after another disastrous short marriage to a con man actor named Bill Forrest, who stole all of her life savings, her gangster friends hook her up with a new guy who will look after her in L.A., and that guy is gangster Mickey Cohen. (gasps) Oh, Yeah. Now... We'll certainly cover Mickey Cohen at a later date in depth because there's just so much there. Absolutely. But a little, a few hits I'll give you. He's He was basically Bugsy Siegel's right-hand man, instrumental in the whole Flamingo Hotel saga that basically made Vegas, like that was sort of the creation of Vegas. Bugsy is killed in a dramatic hit in 1947. And Cohen is like, he reacts very violent to the, violently to this. He's a very violent guy. He goes to the Hotel Roosevelt to try to find Bugsy's killers and fires like rounds of his gun into the hotel lobby ceiling demanding that they meet him outside. Like he's like, I'm coming for you. And like no one ever comes and he finally leaves. He, um, he just like, he even, he starts facing attempts on his life after that. And he actually hires 
Johnny Stompanato to be his bodyguard at the time. As we all know, this would be before he was killed by Lana Turner's daughter. Um, when Johnny Stompanato is killed, he buys him a cheap coffin, and he is the one that turned Lana Turner's love letters to Stompanato over to the press. Like, so that's the type of uh, guy we're dealing with. He's not popular in Hollywood, but obviously he's very powerful. Now, on her way to Hollywood, she drops her kids off to live with her parents, so just temporarily, so she could like set up her life in LA. She's like, by all accounts, a good mother. Like, she never put her kids on the back burner. She always kept them with her and always defended them. Now, once she's in LA, Mickey and her become close friends. They spend almost every day together for the first three weeks, but they keep things platonic out of respect for Cappy. There's a lot of uncertainty about what their romantic relationship was. She claims that nothing ever happened, but then she's often described as his girlfriend. So I don't really know what the truth is or why she would lie about it, but perhaps there's some reasons for that. Anyway, um, at this point, her career is starting to take off and she begins dating a lot of Hollywood stars, including Burt Lancaster, Frank Sinatra, Marlon Brando, George Raft, and Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis? <laughs> She begins to keep a scorecard reading each of these lovers. Good for her. Now, I'll probably get into this more maybe for the mini because her book, um, My First 2000 Men, kind of goes through each guy, each famous guy she fucked, but it just didn't have enough time in this episode, but it will probably be a fun uh, mini-sode. Now, I'll give you one score. Lancaster gets a 10. Lewis, Jerry Lewis only gets a 1. Is that at all surprising to you? No. The reason he gets a 1, Rachel, is because... He doesn't want to cheat on his wife, so he just has Liz walk around in lingerie and heels while he jerks off. I believe that, <laughs> but I also believe that he makes his penis talk. Hey, lady. Yeah, I feel like Jerry Lewis would like do puppetry of the penis for you. <sighs> Can you imagine having him jerk off while you walk around? I just that like, can't think of anything worse for me. Like, no, just watching him jerk it. <laughs> Going gliding. And she's like furious by this. She's like Just disgusted. Just the noises that he would be making. I don't also, think so. Also, like, that's cheating. I'm sorry. Of like, course that's cheating. Come on. Unless it's like, yeah, that's cheating. Yeah. So now Mickey Cohen, he does get a little jealous that Liz is always busy now, but he comes back to into her life in a big way where her now 14-year-old daughter, Brenda, elopes in Mexico. Now, Liz actually agrees to sign the papers so she can legally marry in the U.S. She doesn't, like, fight it. The guy is a nice guy. Um, Mickey walks Brenda down the aisle. After the, the wedding, he tells Liz if she ever wanted to marry again, she should know that Jewish men make the best husbands. <laughs> I mean, not that he benefits from that at, at all. Look, I would say, you know what? You could make that argument, but not if you're Mickey Cohen. Yeah. I don't think he's a good husband. Now, Bugsy Siegel, on the other hand, <laughs> I think Bugsy Siegel was very hot. He's hot. Mickey Cohen's not hot. Mickey Cohen's not hot, but Bugsy Siegel, that was a hot man. He's a good looking guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So now around this time, Liz is at a restaurant in LA when she's seen by Cecil B. DeMille in a restaurant. He is mesmerized by her beauty and Seemingly at the time, she, he like promises her the role of Esther in some Bible movie that he's doing. So she's like convinced like this is it. This is her big break that she's going to be in a Cecil B. DeMille Bible movie, which are big back then. Here's <laughs> why I was never discovered in a restaurant. <laughs> because I am a fucking pig while I'm eating. Yeah, I'm not sitting there daintily sipping some like never. cocktail and like dabbing my my like corners of my mouth no i am humiliating yeah. myself don't look at me everyone was dunking on this picture of ivana trump eating spaghetti and i was like that's literally why i'm afraid of becoming famous because i don't <laughs> want people taking pictures of me eating spaghetti and you know it's happening <laughs> or course. anything i look like an idiot while i'm eating if i i know that i'll see a picture of myself like in my car eating a pizza or something like look at her i guess someone's on hiatus like <laughs> Like, you just know they're going to, like, dunk on me for eating. Honestly, I can't wait for that day to happen. Okay. Where does she put it? That's what I hope they say. <laughs> <laughs> That's the dream. Yes. Um, so now around this time, some mob shit starts going down. Cappy's boss, Albert Anastasia, is gunned down in New York, and Cappy's life is in danger at this point. Making matters even worse is that Mickey begins asking Liz to do some favors for him, including 
what I can only guess is some kind of money laundering type thing where she, he's like giving her money and then she pays him this money. So it's like, she'll write him a check, but he covers the check, like gives her cash to put in the bank. So, and he keeps doing that several times. And then there's like incidents too, where he doesn't put the money in fast enough. So the check bounces. Like it's a whole, like, it's like, dude, this just seems bad on its face. And I know nothing about money laundering. (laughs) Like it seems pretty pretty shady. Now, while Liz is going through this shit, she gets word from a woman named, wait for it, Phyllis Pusso. (laughs) Dude, can I just tell you, I lost it when I read this name. Like I was choking and sputtering because I couldn't I was like I cannot wait to read this name to to Rachel and there's literally no reason to really even include this story in this thing but I had to I had to say the word Phyllis Pusso that is the greatest name of all time I can't even think of a better name like hello Phyllis Pusso here (laughs) it's Phyllis Pusso (laughs) tell her Phyllis Pusso hello it's Phyllis Pusso calling that's how she sounds I was just like what the hell uh, it's amazing. And tell her that Phyllis Pusso <laughs> said to puss off. That was almost like what it was because this woman calls her Phyllis Pusso and she gets a phone call from Phyllis Pusso that Cappy <laughs> has had a heart attack in jail, but he had actually just kind of faked it to get a little time outside. So she goes to New York because she's concerned for Cappy. There's no more about Phyllis Pusso, sadly. And she has to do another weird money thing for Mickey. Now, while she's in New York, she goes to party at the Oak Room, which is like a bar. Is that in the, um, oh, what's that hotel? Fuck. The, pl- the Plaza? I don't know. It's one of those old school like bars, like the Algonquin, like the Oak Room. So while she's there, she gets word from a friend of hers that she had, this friend had just been pulled over the police by the police because they thought they, that she was Liz Renee. So she's like, the police are looking for you. Phyllis and one of her friends try to Phyllis. like... Phyllis. I'm sorry. Phyllis was so... <laughs> Phyllis is not in the story sorry, anymore. Liz and one of her friends... She should be. <laughs> Liz and one of her friends try to like escape out the back of like the Oak Room. Uh, while they're leaving, they get busted by the cop. She's handcuffed and arrested at, um, for her part um, in the murder of Albert Anastasia, <gasps> who was Cappy's... Uh, the mob boss that was killed. As she's being dragged out of the Oak Room, she sees Cecil B. DeMille looking on, shaking his head. Oh, no. You never want that. In the book, Liz says that this was the moment that was the beginning of a series of events that would leave her life in shambles. Now, while she's being questioned by the police, she realizes what brought suspicion her way. It was one of those repayments from Mickey Cohen for $5,500 that happened to go down the day before Anastasia was rubbed out. So it looked like some kind of payment was happening for killing this guy. She is subpoenaed to testify in front of a grand jury, and she quickly becomes a tabloid headline. She's just like this actress with mob ties, the girlfriend of Mickey Cohen. There was even stories that um, she jilted Cappy for Cohen, so they're creating all this drama. Um, She's also now called in as a witness back in LA for Cohen's track tax evasion. I'm sorry, tax evasion trial. So she's like a witness in two mob trials right now. While she's still in New York, Liz is actually a talented painter. Uh, she she decides that she's going to take all the paintings she's made and do an art show during this period while she's a huge tabloid star. And she makes a killing. Uh, at this art show she puts on. So good for her. She goes back to Hollywood where she's immediately subpoenaed to testify in Mickey's tax evasion case. But despite all this press, none of it is good. And the studios that she's kind of working with Warner Brothers, they all start cutting back on her like training. Like, you know how the celebrities all take acting and singing and whatever. Tap. <laughs> you know how it is. Uh, she's on. She was on like um, a Groucho Marx show like a, I think it's like a game show. And that episode, they like pulled that episode that, that she you was bet on. Your life? Yeah, you bet your life. I couldn't remember. Um, and then every, the phone calls just stop happening. All like she's getting nothing. She's basically whatever. Someone warned her early on when she had this relationship with Mickey that it would be bad for her in the long run to be tied to him. And that pretty much is true. Her relationship with Mickey ruined her reputation in Hollywood. 
Now, she testifies numerous times in these cases, uh, especially the one with Mickey Cohen, which allowed, at some point, the Fed came after Liz on her own. She was arrested and charged by the Feds with five counts of perjury for her testimony during um, the Mickey Cohen tax evasion trial. Now, in the book, Liz is very outraged by this, and she says... I was so shocked because I thought it was fine because they were just a bunch of little white lies. <laughs> she thinks it's like, there's just a little, who doesn't have a little white lie? <laughs> she is very innocent. Like there are some amazing clips of her on YouTube where you're just like, this is the sweetest woman ever. Like, so I kind of always buy her like innocence. Of course. Now, on top of all of this, Liz gets a letter in the mail that she might have cancer. This is like an insane thing. Like there's a copy of the letter and it's literally like, hi, Liz, the test didn't come back the way we wanted. So I need to see you immediately. It's urgent. And I was like, imagine getting a letter from your doctor that you might have cancer. It's honestly nerve wracking just getting a voicemail. That's yeah. like, call us back. But it seems like you, you're really going to wait a few days. <laughs> like It's not an emergency to get me in there. Um, I don't think she ends up having cancer because it never comes up again. So this is a stressful time for her. She's facing 25 years in prison. She eventually agrees to plead guilty for a deal of only five years, but the judge took sympathy on her and he gave her probation and a suspended sentence of three years. So this was for perjury they were charging her? Okay. Now... In 1960, Liz gets a call about her old con man husband, Bill Forrest. In the book, she said, the phone call went like, have you heard about Bill Forrest? And she said, I hope he dropped dead. And the person said, well, he did. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Liz is kind of excited because she thinks an inheritance might be coming her way. But just when she thought she was about to get a quarter of a million dollars, she found out Bill was married when they got hitched. So they were never married. He was a bigamist. <gasps> so she got none of this money that she would have been owed if they actually were married. So she really needed the money because she's really struggling to work at this time. Um, she can't get work in any of the LA clubs because the sheriff's department goes to those clubs and tells them not to hire her or the clubs will become a mob like a mo- huge mob client and they don't want that to happen. She couldn't travel out of state obviously because she's on probation. And at least then when you're on probation, you really have to show how you're supporting yourself. And at that point she was just getting like these 50 and hundred dollar loans from friends every month. Like yeah, a few, they want you to be employed, but we make it so impossible for convicts to be employed. Yeah. Even in this situation, like, yeah. Yeah. So, at some point, she's overjoyed because she gets a boring receptionist job. Like, the one thing I will tell about Liz, she'll, like, take any job. She doesn't fucking care. So on her first day of work, the doctor tells her he was fine with her being Liz Renee. She didn't have to worry about that. In fact, that was why he hired her, because of her connections to the underworld. Liz was a little disappointed because she, like, you know, she wanted to do something on her own, but she really needed a job. And the doctor said he could officially... Uh, he could the doctor told her then that she couldn't officially say she worked for him which fucked her up because she had to tell the parole officer because he really wanted her for a secret like side hustle now he was actually providing illegal abortions and wanted Liz to direct knocked up mob girlfriends and entertainment types his way offering her 25% of each abortion and he was like we'll we'll do like 10 per morning so this will be like a lot of money for you liz said to him I just wanted a reception job. I don't want to get into the abortion business. (laughs) Just like such a John Waters line too. Absolutely. So she thinks at this point, like she has like another lead that she's going to get this modeling job. So this guy is like, I'm going to pay you $50 for the test shot. If we like those, you'll get $200 for the gig. So that's great for Liz. She, of course, goes with him to this hotel, I think in Palm Springs, where they're going to shoot these like bikini pics. Um, Of course, they get drunk and they're in a hotel room with the guy who is like the photographer slash like running the account, the advertising account. Of course, he tries to fuck her in this hotel and she refuses while he's basically chasing her around and she's like in a towel because she was getting dressed for the photo shoot. The cops bust in the door. (gasps) They arrest Liz for resorting, which is an old school charge that means checking in a motel to do immoral things. (laughs) But this guy was assaulting her. I know. Basically, 
here's what she thinks happened. She thinks the DA was pissed when she got an easy sentence and he wants her fucking arrested. So they were like setting her up to get arrested for some minor infraction. Then she would violate her parole and ha- and could possibly go to jail for violating her parole. Wait a minute. Yes. Was this guy not even a photographer? He might have been like an innocent victim in it all. He's not innocent. <laughs> no, he's not innocent. But like as far as the scheme to get her arrested, yeah. it just was sort of like they were like following her and trying. I, I, she didn't say anything in the book, so I don't know. So this was a charge that they could have. Yes. So now like he, the DA in LA was desperate for any conviction related to Mickey Cohen. He was like coming up empty handed. So at least he could probably get her on like three years um, so I think they were just following her, looking for any infraction, like noise complaint, like anything. These guys are disgusting. Yeah. She's booked in jail now, and she's sent to the showers where she begins the delousing process. Her first thought there, she said in the book, was, there goes my champagne blonde toner I just used, because <laughs> she has to pour this like chemical lice shampoo or whatever. Honestly, that would have been my first thought, too. Then she is told to pour a substance over her bush to get rid of the crabs. Liz is offended because she has never had crabs, but she does it anyway. The next day she wakes up and there's like a smushed cockroach between her face and the pillow. So jail is just awful for Liz and for everyone. Now she, the next morning after the delousing has to go to a judge and um, she had to basically at this point, now they're questioning her for all of these fifty and hundred dollar payments she was getting from her male friends. They were literally just sending her this money to help her. Uh, but the judge is like, "What is this?" And this guy pays you fifty dollars at the hotel. Now they're basically the judge is basically a- accusing her of um, sex work. She gets offended talking to the judge, saying, "Hey, I'm not a fifty dollar hooker." <laughs> She's like, "I would get way more." <laughs> Um, but luck was not in Liz's favor. This time her parole was revoked and she was to go to prison. She, when the judge told her she was going to go to prison, she said, this is a disgrace. (laughs) Yelled it at the judge. Now she goes into this a lot in the book. I'm not going to get too much into it because it's like so long. She basically blames Robert Kennedy for all this. Like she's always like cursing his name, thinking that because he started this whole thing and had this whole deal with the mob and just trying to go after them for every charge he could. And she kind of got wrapped up in it. So she really blames Robert Kennedy for all of this. She is miserable in prison at first. She's at that prison terminal Island, the -hmm. one that's in San Pedro. Uh, at some point, she paints a portrait for a woman at Terminal Island that's like a picture, a portrait of her daughter. And it's like the most joyful present this woman has because she misses her daughter. So she has this like Aww. painting uh, that sort of saves her in prison. She starts painting these portraits for everyone about of their family members. Uh, she's a big hit. She paints like 150 portraits there. This is where she writes that memoir in prison. Uh, and the chapters on prison life in this book are really fascinating. So you should get the book. Everyone should get this book. It's a really juicy memoir. But she talks a lot about prison abuse. She talks about incidents where one inmate poisoned a bunch of the other women. Uh, There's a whole chapter on prison sex, which obviously there's a lot of like (laughs) affairs happening between guards and inmates. Liz talks about the um, butch broads and the femme broads like there's two sex in the prison and she gets offended Liz gets offended by funny things she's offended because the the women at the prison label her a no play broad (laughs) (laughs) no Liz gets into it with the butch broads at some point because Liz is very like feminine and and like you know like a Marilyn Monroe type they all love her but she like actually scares them so they stop bugging her then Liz says that because she took down the butches the femmes all got have crushes on her <laughs> because they think she's like the alpha butch <laughs> and she's like I am not like did so she it's like did she get with any of the femmes well she is not into prison romances at all and she says in the book that even if I were a lesbian I'd be celibate here because <laughs> she's just like she she's like not disgusted by the lesbianism, but just the power plays with the guards and the women and how the guards like keep the women desperate for like, she thinks it's like fucked up and she like hates that the guards are abusing their power. Oh yeah. The prison guards do that shit all the time. Yeah. So she's like more disgusted by that element of it. Yeah. Um, Not the women, obviously. Now Liz, she ends her memoir with 
a really great line. It says, I'm Liz Renee and I'm proud of it. (laughs) She goes into a few more marriages at the end. As I said, she got married seven times, but I just don't really, they weren't that interesting. Uh, This book comes out in 71. Liz now around this time has a really successful burlesque show career. In 74, she has this smash engagement at an LA club. And this is like another thing she's very famous for. And you can hear her tell the story on a YouTube video. It's really funny. So she goes out and parties and gets drunk on champagne. The next day... Oh, so the sign for her club show said, um, striking Liz... Um, sorry, stri- striking Liz Renee, like starring striking Liz Renee. Someone vandalized the side to say streaking Liz Renee because streaking was very hot in 1974. So she gets a um, phone call the next morning from like a radio show or something. And they're like, is it true that you're going to streak today down Hollywood and fine? She said, yeah, of course I'm going to streak, like just kind of half, half awake and sort of still drunk from champagne. Then she sort of regrets her remarks, but the company that's putting on her show in LA is like, you said you have to do it. Now everyone's going to expect you to do it. It will be great for the show. So Liz is like, fine. They're like, it's fine. No one's going to show up. We'll have a car right there with a robe to put you in after you do it. She shows up. There's 5,000 people on Hollywood and Vine. She takes her robe off and runs down Hollywood and Vine naked. Uh (laughs) She's 48 years old at this time, Rachel. Amazing. <laughs> She's incredible. It's a huge hit, and the show is like a smash success after this like publicity or inadvertent publicity stunt. There's a picture of her streaking online, like na- fully naked, with huge fucking boobs, too, and like a huge bouffant, like running down the street naked. It's like the best picture ever. It's pure joy. Now, she gets arrested. <laughs> for streaking down Hollywood Boulevard, but a jury acquits her eventually of the charge. Because why would you? Now, what she's best known for, however, is her 1977 role in John Waters' movie, Desperate Living. Now, John, as I mentioned before, was obsessed with her memoir. He begged her to be in Desperate Living. And when they met, he said it was the closest he would ever come to being with Jane Mansfield (laughs) because she just had that vibe. So he goes to see Renee in a burlesque show in Boston. He travels to Los Angeles to get her to do this role because she's not 100% sure. She never really had an acting career. So she's kind of nervous about taking on this big role. She doesn't even know what it is. The role is that of Muffy St. Jacques. Um, He gives her a brief outline of the story, (laughs) withholding some of the more graphic details because he (laughs) wants her to come to Baltimore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to film this movie. It's like three weeks. And he's like, I promise I'll get you home before Christmas. Like they also could barely afford, like she's still like the biggest star they've had in a movie at this right. point. So they still had to spend a lot of money on her. Um, so this is the only movie that John Waters made without divine prior to him dying. Uh, he at the time had to be, he was filming some, uh, a movie called women behind bars <laughs> which is like an amazing camp thing. Um, This movie is also his first without David Lockery, who was had a severe drug addiction at the time and just couldn't do it. He was like on PCP, like seriously serious drug. Was that the drug he was addicted to? Yeah. So he was like doing hardcore shit. He actually died a few weeks after the film's release. Um, He had injured himself while on the influence of a drug and, and just didn't recover. So she agrees to play this role in Desperate Living. This movie also stars Mink Stahl, Edith Massey, um, Mary Vivian Pierce, so a lot of people from his earlier movies. It's the third installment of what John Waters has labeled his trash trilogy. That includes the movies Pink Flamingos and our favorite Female Trouble. Um, So yeah, this film has a cult following, obviously, and especially around Liz Renee. Like She's a real uh, standout in this movie. It's a great movie. Yeah. I, I was watching some clips of it today and I was really laughing hard. Just like just the scenes with Queen Carlotta, who is played by Edith Massey, are just fucking it's like every, you want that to be your inner like that's everyone's inner monologue. <laughs> just like this like brazen bitch bitch that's just hilarious. She's constantly carried around by hot guys in like 
like the biker from Village People costume. <laughs> like yeah. just like just like hilarious. Um there's just a lot of great performances in this movie. And Liz really has a great time doing it. In this clip, I saw um a clip on YouTube. It's called The Making of Desperate Living. It's only like 14 minutes, so there, I'm hoping there's more I can find. But it's definitely worth uh, checking out because Liz is in it and she's just talking about... She's like this old grandma talking about this cult film that she's in. And she's like, it was the, the most wonderful experience. <laughs> like It's like the most innocent like little grandma talking about this fucking crazy movie that she was in. So it's really cute. I mean, it's probably the most fun ever to film, to do a movie with him. I can't even imagine how great it is. And they probably tweeted, treated her like a queen. Like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just probably was a great experience. Now, after she does this movie, she continues her exotic dancing career. Um, I saw a clip of one of her performances and it's like, she's doing some press for it at the end and the guy's interviewing her and her little line is my face was for the world to see. And now I cordially invite you to see the rest. (laughs) She's very cute. She eventually has a mother-daughter strip act with her child, Brenda. They do like a mother-daughter strip thing. Uh, Sadly, though, in 1982, Brenda kills herself at the age of 39. And it's really sad because Liz, like in one of the obituaries I read, was like, I still don't know like why. Like she just never really found out why. She does raise her two grandchildren. And they had a good relationship too. So I think they were close. Now... I read a book called <laughs> Whatever Became Of. So it was like, Liz is like one entry. It's like a hundred people. It's like, like what happened to that person? So I actually want to go through it because I bet you there's some good ideas for episodes. Absolutely. Because I, I, when I was reading the index to find Liz's entry, I had not heard of like 95% of the people. And I know we- weird, random people. Yeah. So I definitely want to go check that book out more. So in that book, She's kind of interviewed for this book. Her later years, she spent living in Vegas near Caesar's Palace. Um, This profile said that, you know, in this interview, she had no more room for love. She just enjoyed living freely with her Pekingese dogs. She said in this book that she had never had therapy. Um, (laughs) I don't know why she had to bring that up, but she did. And she said that she had never been ill and had never seen a physician. In 1981, she wrote a book called Staying Young, and it was about her interest in natural foods, plastic surgery, and vacuuming cellulite. (laughs) I want to get this book so badly. I would love to have Liz Renee be my, like, health guru. (laughs) Natural foods, plastic surgery, and and vacuuming cellulite. Vacuuming cellulite, like, what is that? That's a very L.A. philosophy. Yes. Now... She also spoke about her new risque comedy act that she was developing. She said it would be blue comedy and include a six-minute rant where she will pick apart Joan Rivers the way Joan Rivers picks apart other people, but with taste. And she said... (laughs) She said there will be a lot of sex in her act. Her last, her like grand finale act was a song called Don't Call Him a Cowboy Until You See Him Ride. Then she um, would invite the entire audience back to her place for an orgy. (laughs) I mean, that was just a gimmick. She didn't really do it. So uh, yeah, I would love to see Liz Renee's later year act. Like that to me is an ideal night of entertainment. It's so sad when you can't find these things online to watch. Yeah, because they had someone she was younger, like in the seventies. So she was like forties, fifties. But I would like I like the older stuff. Like I want to see her as an old lady. Yeah, because you know she was hilarious. Now in this interview, she also shares her philosophy of, of life that guilt is a waste of time. And when she is asked about old age and dying, she says she may never reach old age, and no one knows what happens when you die. So what's the point of thinking about it? <laughs> She's very zen. Now. Shortly before she died, she attended the 49th annual Strip Tease reunion that was sponsored at the Exotic World Burlesque Museum in Las Vegas. While there, um, a woman named Judy Thorburn, who's like a Vegas expert, um, said that she stole the show by being carried in like she was Cleopatra on a royal pillow. <laughs> so she's like 80 when this is happening. And um, John Waters said that he had spoken to Liz two weeks before she died. And he said, she was very much a glamour girl right up to the end. She always played the glamorous Vegas showgirl type, no matter how old she was. Renee died at age of 80 on January 22nd, 2007 in Las Vegas from cardiac arrest and gastric bleeding. Um, 
the book, My Face for the World to See, was reissued in 2002, and now it's kind of like a cult classic, and John Waters has written a new um, forward to it. So I would love to get that copy. Um, I just had an online thing. So yeah, that's the story of Liz Renee. That was a great story. I had not, knew nothing about her life. I didn't either. And then I was reading this book, and I was like always nervous. I was like, is there enough here? <laughs> but she had like a really... Uh, interesting life yeah didn't she like she really did it's like she never became a star really but she is a huge star in my eyes absolutely (laughs) she's an icon yeah she's so cute I really think you should all find these clips of her on YouTube just put her name in and then press video I'll tell you how to use the computer does he (laughs) like you don't even have to put in like clip names like they just came up with her name did you know how to use Google (laughs) Just put her name in and then click video. <laughs> Thank you, Desi. Look, I find these things difficult. <laughs> so yeah, there's so many good pictures. I can't wait so to post pics. I want to like, there's just going to be a lot of good pictures. So follow us on Instagram. There's one of her and John Waters that is so good. I like want a painting of it. It's so, I love it so much. Well, we'll post that. Okay, we'll post that Absolutely. when we drop the episode. Okay, guys. Um, okay. Sorry this episode, this is late. I'm sorry, guys. Oh. Oh, um, oh it's okay. Oh, it's okay. Um, Wait, hold on. Oh, yeah. Okay, it's Tuesday already. All right, well, yeah. And we'll see you guys later this week for the mini episode. Yeah. If we're ever late in a day, we will still always release two episodes a week. That's right. So... We're just tardy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, who does Don't Be Tardy for the oh, Party? Oh, that's from uh, Real Housewives of Atlanta. No, Kim I don't. Zolciak. Don't Be Tardy for the Party. Don't Be Tardy for the Party. Yeah. And the other one, the only other one I know is Money Doesn't Buy You Class. That's from Real Housewives of New York. Is that Countess Luann? Yes. <laughs> She's the one who has a cabaret act. Okay. Following in the footsteps of Liz Renee, but not nearly as fun, no. I think. No. <laughs> Okay, so we're tardy. But okay. you know what? It came the episode. We're came doing out. our best. We're doing our best here. <laughs> In the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. We're great. We love our listeners. Okay, okay thanks bye. guys. Bye.